The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. Woe is me that I dwell in Mesech, that I dwell among the tents of Kadar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Okay, we're in Deuteronomy 32, verses 15 through 22. This is the Song of Moses, part 3. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick. You are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful, and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. My dad mentioned to me many years ago that when typing a book, the less references there are to a specific period, the more likely the book will be relevant at any time. If one refers to Ronald Reagan in the book, the material becomes dated. As such, it will only be relevant to those who are looking into that specific era or topic. I've tried to remember that lesson and have attempted to make things I write more useful to any generation. However, there is also the truth that when writing things, there is often more of an appeal to the audience if the lesson from right now is included. It is hard to get away from right now because it is our reference point to gauge the past and compare it to our own circumstances. This can be especially relevant in a sermon where people need to wake up to what is happening around them. It may be helpful to make a comparison of Israel as Moses describes him in today's passage to some other point in time like ancient Rome that also grew fat and complacent. But if that is all that is stated, it ignores the obvious connection to us today. This sermon will refer to our circumstances in the United States as we become the latest example in the history of the world to follow the same pattern since creation. Society is formed, society develops until man increases and has ease. 
Man forsakes God and grows in wickedness, and man is judged, reaping what he has sown. Our text verse comes from Isaiah chapter 44. Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen, thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. The Lord formed Jacob his servant, and he chose Jeshurun, meaning Israel. As such, there should have been a resulting appreciation for what the Lord had done, a clinging to him, and an ever-increasing bond between them. But that is not human nature. Instead, people, communities, nations, and indeed the entire world tend to move away from God as they prosper and develop. The more prosperous the city, the more liberal and wicked the people become. This is why a nation such as the United States may have a massive area of conservative voters that are spread out across the nation, but the cities and populated states quickly turn left and take on a distasteful shade of blue. There is a joining together of those who are prosperous, and the result is discussions about new, inventive, and exciting ways of doing evil. With the global prosperity that has arisen in the past century, the entire world is heading down the same path as the pre-flood world. Only when real calamity arises will people turn back to the Lord. Unfortunately, when real calamity arises, it's often too late. When a nuke detonates over Rome, for example, there won't be much time to think on how to get right with God. Only those on the outskirts of the blast zone will have time to maybe humble themselves and reach out to him before the radiation consumes what is left of them too. And those further away may, if they are wise, see and turn. But it all started with a life of ease. When things are going well, we forget our God and find other things to chase after. Let us be wise and pay heed to him now before things devolve, not after. Such lessons as this are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of two thoughts today is the rock of his salvation. It's verses 15 through 18. We have been following the progression of the song of Moses as it develops. There has been an introductory call. Moses then proclaimed the perfections of Jehovah. He then provided a contrast by noting the imperfections of Israel. Next, he spoke of the calling, establishment, and exalting of the nation. Verses 15 through 18 will tell of Israel's abandonment of Jehovah because of prosperity and ease, leading to apostasy from him and to false gods. Verse 15, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. As was the case previously, the verbs are imperfect, giving the sense of the events happening right before our eyes. Vayishman Yeshurun Vayivat, and he grows fat, Yeshurun, and he kicks. Yeshurun is a proper noun and is a play upon the name of Israel. One can see the similarity when written in the Hebrew. If you're looking at the Hebrew side by side, it's very clear how they almost match. It will be seen only four times in Scripture. Here, in 33.5, and in 33.26, and once in Isaiah 44, verse 4. It is derived from the word yashar, which means straight, level, or upright. Some see it as a diminutive, and thus it is a term of endearment. 
which is then something like child of the upright or blameless little people. Others say it is a descriptor, meaning upright one. But if you look at the other times it is used, it is given synonymously for the name Jacob. And as such, it is a proper noun. It means upright. From Deuteronomy 33, verses 4 and 5, it says, Moses commanded a law for us, a heritage of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun when the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Of this name for Israel, Moses describes his state as he grows fat. It is a new verb, shamen, meaning to grow fat. It is always used in conjunction with Israel. The idea is that of having plenty and thus being at ease. In such a state, there is a resulting lack of reliance on the Lord. In essence, all is good and I have no needs. I can do as I want without a care. The other three uses of the word show the process by which Israel departed from the Lord. The first to note is found in Isaiah, prior to the thought of any exile. Here's what it says in Isaiah 6. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull. The word shamen, literally, make fat their heart and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with the heart and return and be healed. From there, Moses' words are fulfilled in the people as described by Jeremiah. They have grown fat, that same word. They are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper, and the right of the needy they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? And then, after the exile, Nehemiah recalls the state of the people. It says in Nehemiah 9, And they took strong cities and a rich land, and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat, same word again, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. One can see how ease, meaning growing fat, leads to a growing fat of the heart meaning the understanding, and that then leads to a rejection of the Lord and a need for his corrective measures. If one can't see that in our nation today, he is not looking very hard. Moses says that in this state of growing fat, and he kicks. It is another new and very rare verb, ba'at. It will only be seen one more time, and the sense of the meaning is understood from that use. It's from 1 Samuel 2. Why do you kick Ba'at at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? The idea is to despise. In Jeshurun's growing fat, their attitude towards the Lord and his goodness towards them is to despise him. As before, it is exactly what is seen in our nation today. Next, Moses again uses the word signifying to grow fat along with another new word. Verse 15 continues, you grew fat, you grew thick. It is correct. Shamanta avita, you grew fat, you grew thick. The aspect of the verbs is now in the perfect. 
Note the change. And he grows fat, Yeshurun, and he kicks. You grew fat, you grew thick. From the action of growing fat, the result is realized. Along with that, a new word, ava, or to be thick is seen. One can see upright, no longer is upright. He is a blob that has grown out instead of up. So much so that, verse 15 continues, you are obese. Kasita, you are bulging. The verb kasa is found only here. It comes from the cognate noun kasa, meaning to cover. A literal translation would be you covered. But the unstated meaning is being covered with fat. Yeshurun has gorged himself so much and so often that he is nothing but a roly-poly blob. As such, verse 15 continues, then he forsook God who made him. Vayitosh Eloha Asahu. And he deserts God who made him. Explaining the verb natsa will clarify the action. It comes from a root meaning to pound. As such, when something is pounded, it spreads out and the edges move farther and farther away. What is evident is that as Israel grows, there is a resulting movement away from God. It just happens. It is the inevitable result of prosperity. The same has been the case in the United States. We have grown fat, really fat. We have kicked in our obesity, and the disdain we have shown for God has only grown as the prosperity has increased. This is so much the case that to even speak of him in public is considered objectionable by the left. They literally hate him and want him erased from every public meeting place. So I will tell you, that when I go out and I work at the mall, like I was this morning, I went to the mall and I watered the plants out in the front of the mall. Or if I'm planting new plants at the mall, or if I'm doing anything where my car is with me, I take my radio and I turn it up as high as I can with the Bible playing. And everybody gets to hear scripture because I couldn't care diddly if the left likes it or not. They're going to hear the word. And if it offends them, good. The halls of our government are inclusive of Jews who literally hate the thought of God. But they are only a part of the left's machine of this hatred. They are just more practiced at it after all of this time. Verse 15 continues, And scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. Venavel tsur yeshuato. And he humiliates rock his salvation. The verb navel speaks of being foolish or stupid. As this is used causatively, the action is toward the Lord, and it is hard to come up with a suitable word to convey the intent. But I would liken what they do to how Christ was treated on the cross. He was mocked and humiliated. In this, the sense seems to come through appropriately. Verse 15 has a particular parallel structure to it. It is an A-A-A-B-B structure, and he grows fat, yeshurun. And he kicks. That's an A-B. I'm sorry. And then it goes A-A-B-B after this. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are bulging. And then B-B. And he deserts God who made him. And he humiliates rock, his salvation. Israel looked around and saw that life was good. There is no need for anything and no care for life with the Lord. And so they looked down on him instead of looking up to him. Yeshurun humiliates the rock of his salvation. <laughs> On to the next verse, verse 16. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. Yakni uhu bezarim. They move him to jealousy in strangers. 
Notice how the words have gone to the plural. Israel forsook the Lord and all of the people go astray in their own unique way. One after this and one after that. The words themselves are reminiscent of the man in Numbers 5 who is jealous of his wife who is strayed. There it says, if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself. The people go after strangers, meaning gods other than the Lord. In this, they move him to jealousy. It is the USA Today. 10,000 false gods, wood, stone, digital, sexual, powerful influence, financial, religious. It goes on and on and on. There is time for anything and everything except for the Lord. As such, it is, verse 16 continues, with abominations they provoked him to anger. Betoevot yakisuhu. In abominations, they are provoking him to indignation. The jealousy leads to the anger. Their false attitude towards him is the grounds for his anger. This is perfectly seen in the record of Jeroboam where the same verb is used from 1 Kings 15. Because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned and by which he had made Israel sin, because of his provocation with which he had provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Jeroboam had set up the golden calves in Bethel and in Dan for the people to worship. But even more offensively, he ascribed to them the people's deliverance from Egypt. Here's what he said. It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. But this is what the people had already done, even from the very moments after they had accepted the terms of the covenant. This is from the book of Exodus. And Aaron said to them, break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand. And he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. But Aaron went further by then stating that what they had just made was, in fact, the Lord, saying, A feast to Jehovah tomorrow. In these things, the people not only prostituted themselves to others, but they did so while claiming that what they were worshiping, something which is a part of what he created, is actually the self-existent creator, Jehovah. It is like watching the Pope kiss the feet of a plastic model of baby Jesus or a wooden image of Jesus hanging on a cross and calling it a good thing, as if that is somehow connected to the Lord who actually came and walked among us and who was then crucified for our sins. There is no reasoning as to the true nature of their actions before the Lord. In this verse, we see reverse parallelism. It's A, B in the first clause and then B, A in the second clause. They move him to jealousy in strangers. In abominations, they are provoking him to indignation. It is future, but it is assured. The charges against them are laid out in advance, but more indictment against Israel is ahead. Verse 17, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. Yizbechu lashedim lo eloha. They are sacrificing to the demons, not God. It is a rare and a very difficult word, shed. It is found only here and in Psalm 106, verse 37. 
Some say it is of foreign origin, like the Arabic word for Satan. As such, and being plural, it would be to the Satans, and thus demons. It may also come from the Hebrew should, signifying waste. This would still refer to demons as something malignant. Moses was aware of them in advance, and the psalm bears out that Israel did exactly this, even with their own children. Think of America today with all the abortions. Psalm 106, they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. There's no difference in what we do today. We're sacrificing our children to the idols of convenience and prosperity. It's still a sacrifice of your child, and the Lord abhors it. The horror of their actions cries out from the pages of their own scriptures, testifying against them both in advance and after the fact. This is what Paul later warned the church of from 1 Corinthians 10. Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is a practice often seen in Roman Catholicism, where the false gods of the nations are actually incorporated into the church through what is known as syncretism. A good example of that is Santeria. It is the merging of different religious expressions. Just two years ago, a statue of Pachamama, Mother Earth of Amazonian worship, was incorporated into a Vatican display during prayer services. As praise and prayers are considered sacrifices to God, this is perfectly akin to what Israel was charged for. Their allegiances were directed, verse 17 continues, to gods they did not know. Elohim lo yedaum, gods know they knew. The Lord was God to them. He had removed them from a land of gods to be their only God. But they didn't just go back to the old gods of Egypt. They actively went seeking after new gods to serve. Verse 17 continues, to new gods, new arrivals. It is a plural adjective. Chadashim mikarov bau, newbies, from near they came. The word karov or near can mean in time or in vicinity. Due to the structure of the verse, it is probably referring to time. They are newbies. It's the only word I could think of that would fit the structure, newbies. I wasn't trying to be funny with it. I'm just telling you it's the only word that I could think of that actually fit what is being presented. Verse 17 continues, that your fathers did not fear. Lo se'arum avotechem. No have they dreaded your fathers. One gets a sense of appeasement with these words. The word sa'ar doesn't mean to just fear, but to be terrified of. It comes from a root signifying to storm. Thus, it speaks of being terribly afraid. We can imagine the false gods conjured up by people when telling stories. Eventually, like in a Hollywood movie, the people become terrified of them. In order to pacify them, sacrifices are made to them. Here's an example that came to mind while I was typing this. When I was a kid, we grew up out on the quay, and we'd go out on the dock, and my mother loved thunderstorms. And every time there was a thunderstorm coming across the bay, we'd go outside, and we'd watch it come over, and we'd hear the thunder all the way across the sky. And she'd say, that's, I think, the elves or the dwarves playing their bowling in the heavens. It was, she was just kidding. 
But eventually people get these things in their head and they start saying that this is true. And pretty soon you fear these gods that are up there making these things. And next thing you know, you're sacrificing so that they don't harm you. That's what I'm talking about there. This is unlike their fathers who are close to the Lord. Their relationship was not of terror, but of awe that indicated a right fear of him. Instead of trusting in and fearing the Lord, we'll say, take a chance on me. They feared the demons and sacrificed to them. To the Lord, they sang, so long. Here is the A-B-B-A structure. You got it. One guy got it. A, they are sacrificing to the demons, not God. B, gods know they knew, previously unknown gods. B, newbies, from near they came, previously unknown. And then A again, no, have they dreaded your fathers. Okay, so enough of pop music for today, okay? Of the false gods, does everybody get what I just said? Abba, okay, good. I wasn't sure if you got that, but I know Don got it immediately. Of the false gods, they were mindful, but of the Lord from whom they issued, however, verse 18, of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful. The second verb is adjusive. Sur yeladecha teshi. Rock brought forth you, may you forget. It is also a word unique in scripture, shaya. It comes from a root signifying to keep in memory, be unmindful. Being adjusive, however, it is as a command to forget. Moses is saying, just forget the Lord. May you forget him. Also, the words are all in the singular, you, Israel. Therefore, it is a play on words. There is the rock, stable and unchanging, who brought Israel forth, and then there is Israel being practically commanded by Moses to forget him because of their actions toward him. Verse 18 continues, and have forgotten the God who fathered you. Vatishkach el mecholelecha. And you have forgotten God in travail with you. The idea conveyed is the process the Lord went through in order to establish Israel. It is as if he brought them forth as a woman in labor. All of his efforts were expended to do so, and yet Israel has forgotten him. Moses uses the same term to describe the formation of the world itself. Here's what it says, Ellicott's translation of Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, while thou wast yet in travail with earth and world, and from eternity unto eternity, thou art God. Again, we see here reverse parallelism. It goes A-B and then B-A. Rock brought forth you, may you forget, and you have forgotten God in travail with you. The rock of our salvation is not like any other God. He is steadfast and mighty to save. To him alone do the redeemed shout and applaud a marvelous thing he did when his son he gave. Let us refrain from provoking him by following after that which is less than bubbles. That will set us on a path dark and grim and set our feet on a way filled with troubles. In him alone, let us find our rest. And to him alone, let us direct all of our praise. He is worthy of it all, even our very best. And he is worthy of it all, even to eternal days. Our second thought today, I will provoke them to jealousy. Verses 19 through 22. With Israel's abandonment of the Lord, noted by Moses, he will now bring out Jehovah's rejection of them, his turning from them, his judgment upon them, 
However, in verse 21, it will allude to his plan to lure Israel back to himself through his active turning to another group of people. It is the church age, the age that we are living in right now. Verse 19, and when the Lord saw it, he spurned them. Vayar Yehovah Vayinatz, and saw Yehovah and spurned. The words are of Moses beholding the results of Israel's action. They are direct, comprehensive, and unambiguous. Israel's doings are completely open and exposed before the Lord. In seeing what they have done in spurning him, he in turn snubs them. We cannot help but see the ultimate spurning of him in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not that they just rejected him and nailed him to the tree, but they continued to do so, even after the innumerable evidences that he had resurrected and that in his name, healing came to the people through miracles being performed. And so he spurned them. Verse 19 continues, because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. Mika'as banav u benotav. From provocation, his sons and his daughters. Here, the idea of the previous verse continues. The Lord brought them forth, and he was in travail with them. Taken with the previous verse, one can see an additional parallelism where the forgetting of the people leads to the spurning of them by the Lord and how the forgetting of their father is equated to provocation of the children. It is an A-B-A-B pattern. A, rock brought forth you, may you forget. B, and you have forgotten God in travail with you. A, and saw Jehovah and spurned. B, from provocation, his sons and his daughters. They are his sons and his daughters, but they are disobedient and unfaithful to their father. Verse 20, and he said, I will hide my face from them. And he said, I will hide my face from them. This is the result of his spurning them. Moses speaks on behalf of the Lord. I will hide my face from them. This thought was first expressed in the previous chapter, Deuteronomy 31. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil which they have done, in that they have turned to other gods. When the expression, I will hide my face from them is used. One can get the sense of the father not allowing his disobedient children to even come into his presence. Cambridge stupidly says the words, and he said, are a gloss that overloads the rhythm. A gloss is added only to highlight rhythm, not to overload it. I wish they'd stop with the stupid commentaries at Cambridge. They're all dead though, so whatever. But they're recorded forever and I have to read these things and they come up with the stupidest comments to tear apart the word of God. The words are perfectly placed to draw out the thought of the Lord for us to consider. The people are cast off and left to their own devices as a form of discipline against them. The Lord is curious how they will fare. Verse 20 continues, I will seek what their end will be. 
I will see what their end. For sure, the Lord knows their end. It is an ironic way of saying it. Just as a parent would say when a child threatens to run away, go ahead, go then. We'll see how far you get. The Lord knows that without him, their end will not be a happy one. Verse 20 continues, for they are a perverse generation. Kidor papukot, for generation contrariness. It is a new noun to scripture, tapuka, coming from hafak, meaning to turn or overturn. Hence, it refers to them as those who are contrary, always turning things around. This word will be seen nine more times, all in the Proverbs. A good example of it comes from Proverbs 16. A violent man entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. He winks his eye to devise perverse things. He purses his lips and brings about evil. Like the violent man whose facial expressions give away the things of his heart, so is Israel as they devise things that are perverse and mull over doing evil. They are, verse 20 continues, children in whom is no faith. Hema banim lo emun bam. They, children, no trustworthiness in them. It is a new noun, not an adjective. Emun. It is derived from aman, meaning to confirm or to support. Thus, it speaks of the state of being established or trustworthy. Israel is being equated to children that are asked to do the chores while dad is away. And when he comes home, he finds that nothing was done. Instead, the house is sloppier than before. The animals all ran away because the gate was left open. And the day's vegetables have bugs in them because they weren't taken inside and washed. And instead of memorizing their daily Bible passage, they have torn out the pages and made paper airplanes. One can see the A-A-B-B structure of the verse when it is set forth as a whole. And he said, A, I will hide my face from them. A, I will see what their end. B, for generation contrariness. B, they, children, no trustworthiness in them. In their untrustworthiness, he says, verse 21, they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. Hem kinuni belo el. They provoked me jealous in no God. Israel worshipped anything and everything that they could set before them. Not one of the things they set before them was God. The singular is used to describe all of the various things as one. Cumulatively, they are all a no God. The Lord contrasts himself to them, giving the reason for his jealousy. But there is more. Verse 21 continues, They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. They have moved me to indignation in their bubbles. The word hevel signifies vapor or breath. To give the sense of something that can be seen, but that has no substance, I say bubbles. They look like something, but they're nothing. Like your breath that you see on a cold morning, and then it's gone. Because of worshiping something so ridiculously stupid, They have moved the Lord to a state of vexation. As this is so, a plan has been devised to bring them back to their senses. Verse 21 continues, But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. The church age. There is an emphasis in the words, And I, I will provoke them to jealousy in no people. 
One can almost hear the Lord call out as he contrasts what he will do to what they have done. They have done this, and I, I will do that. He then contrasts their no God to his no people. It is the call of the Gentiles. Israel's gods were many, and thus they are no God. The Gentiles are many peoples, and thus they are no people. The contrasting thought continues with, verse 21 continues, I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. It is a brilliant statement forming a play on words between two clauses and an alliteration between two different clauses. The words go noval, or nation foolish, are set against havlehem, or bubbles, forming a play on words. The word naval and havel are spelled with only one letter difference in the Hebrew. The alliteration is seen in the words akneem, provoke to jealousy, and akisem, move them to anger. Now, you might not get what I'm saying, but what I'm telling you is that what Moses is writing is unbelievably outstanding. It is beautiful in the Hebrew. Moses is speaking for the Lord in a unique and remarkable way. Great structure can be seen in this verse. It is A-B-A-B and then A-B-B-A. The first line, they provoked me jealous in no God. Next line, A and then B, they have moved me to indignation in their bubbles. And the word is Havel. A and I, I will provoke them to jealousy. The word Akniem, B in no people. And then B in nation foolish, Navel. A, I will move them to indignation, Akisem. If you see it in the Hebrew and if you understand what is going on, it is a marvelous piece of literature. It is just wisdom defined as far as I'm concerned. This verse is carefully used by Paul as he makes his case for the gospel of justification by faith alone through the calling of the Gentiles in Romans 10. Here's what he says. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says right here from this verse in Deuteronomy, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. The Gentiles, that's who is speaking of. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Israel failed to find Christ, and the Lord turned to the Gentiles to provoke them. What is the provocation that is going to wake them up? The rapture of the church. They will finally understand and begin to say something is going on. The provocation is coming, but it's coming through the Gentiles. And the predominant number of saved believers are Gentiles. But there are a lot of Jews coming to faith in Christ, too. And they're going to see this. And they're going to say this Gentile entity, which included Jews, obviously has replaced us. 
but not in the sense of complete replacement. I'm not a replacement theologian when I say that. I'm saying in God's timing, okay? Israel failed to find Christ, and the Lord turned to the Gentiles to provoke them. But his anger was also to be brought to bear against them. Verse 22, for a fire is kindled in my anger. Ki esh kadecha be'api, for fire kindled in my nostril. Here is a new word, kadach. It signifies to kindle. The Lord spoke through Jeremiah of this using the exact same word. And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know, for you have, there's the word, kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. The idea of the burning nostril is that of fire shooting forth from it. His anger and hot displeasure burn forth as such, verse 22 continues, and shall burn to the lowest hell. Vatikad ad sheol tachtit, and shall burn even to sheol lowest. The word sheol can signify various things, the pit, the underworld, the grave, and so on. The word hell is an archaic word which used to refer to Hades, the underworld. Today, hell takes on the thought of the place of eternal damnation, and this is not the intent. The fire will burn to the lowest places, even the realm of the dead. One can think of Jesus' parable about Lazarus and the rich man. They're in Sheol. They're in the place of the dead. Nowhere will be safe from the burning anger of the Lord. As such, verse 22 continues, it shall consume the earth and her increase, vatokal eretz vibula, and consume land and her increase. This is specifically referring to the land of Israel at this time. The judgment being referred to is solely upon Israel. As far as the connection to the corresponding clause, it says in Genesis 3, verse 19, in the sweat of your face, literally, your nostril, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Man tends to the ground as the sweat rolls down his nostril to bring forth the increase of the earth. The fire of the Lord's nostril shoots down upon the earth and consumes all that Israel has worked for. Nothing will be left. Everything in the land will be destroyed. Verse 22 finishes with, And set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Vatelehet moste harim, and in flame foundations mountains. Moses uses another new word, lahet. It is derived from a root meaning to lick. Thus, by implication, it means to inflame, as tongues of flames lick up everything. This is a poetic way of speaking of the strongest fortifications, even those set directly into the base of mountains, being utterly consumed by the fire that the Lord kindles. There would be flames and burning until nothing was left. Here we have an ABAB structure. A, for fire kindled in my nostril. B, and shall burn even to Sheol the lowest. And then A again, and consume land and her increase. And then B again, and inflame foundations, mountains. The marvelously structured and worded verses are given to excite the imagination and provide an anchor for remembering the content. But the contents are based on an actual meaning. They were given by Moses as a warning of what lay ahead for Israel. Unfortunately, they failed to pay heed, and the terrors that were prophesied came to pass. Their failure continues to this day, and greater terrors lie ahead in the contents of the poem. 
But more, what lies ahead also includes the world at large. Thus, the poem, along with the rest of Scripture, is given as a testament and a warning to the world. But the big question is, does anyone think that the world will pay heed even when the church doesn't? The large majority of the church is asleep at the wheel. Moses, we don't need to read that. They don't know what's coming because they aren't looking at what was given to tell us what's coming. Entire denominations are being led astray by truly wicked people. The holiness and sanctity of the word is disregarded. It is relegated to a bunch of myths outside of a few verses that somehow demonstrate that all will be well and that God accepts what we do no matter how depraved and vile that it is. This is not the case. Israel failed to heed, and even after the millennia of judgments upon them, they still have their heads buried deeply in the sand. The church has, for all intents and purposes, followed suit, just got right in line behind him in his following suit. And thus, the world has no reason to assume that the contents of Scripture hold any merit at all. In this state, things will not, and indeed, they cannot go well. But you, fellow Christian, I would ask you to take stock of what you have heard, apply it to your life, and not be led astray by those who say, all is well. The Lord does not see or care. They are deluded. And in this, the wrath of God shall come upon the entire world. This is the warning of Scripture, but it is preceded with a mark of grace. God was willing to spend his wrath towards us in his own beloved son. Think of it. I'm thinking about what verse to use for the Resurrection Day sermon, which I have to type tomorrow. And this is going through my mind right here, right now, for the past week. What am I going to use? And I decided on the name of the sermon yesterday while listening to my audio Bible because I listen to an audio Bible while I'm driving, right? You can't know the scriptures if you're not reading them or listening to them. This man has done no evil. The pains and wrath that Christ faced were sufficient to stay the wrath of God that we deserve because the righteousness he bears is sufficient to remove from us the sin we bear. In him and in him alone, the exchange can be made. Israel has yet to figure this out, but the people of God, those who understand the significance of the cross, have seen and understood. If you are like disobedient Israel, Today is the day for you to wake up from your slumber and to reach out to the God who loves you enough to do what he did just for you. Don't waste a moment, but call out to him for life and length of days, even to eternity in his presence. Because I'm telling you, things are going to devolve very quickly after the rapture of the church and people are going to have to wake up and make decisions and they're not going to be pretty decisions for those who are left behind. I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. You're going to have to face real troubles and woes. We think we got it bad now with the price of gas going up, with beef getting expensive. Just wait. Things are going to be terrible. And this isn't a threat to people. Oh, you ought to call on Jesus because you could go to hell. That's not my thing. My thing is that Jesus died for me. He's offered you grace. The hell is already a given. Why preach on that? You need to preach on what Christ has done. He came to live the life that we can't live, to get us out of the place that we are already by default going to. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Call on him today. Understand that all of this woe, all of this misery that is prophesied here and all the way throughout the rest of the Old Testament, all of it 
is a self-inflicted wound. All we need to do, though, to get out of that is to just ask for the pardon of Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, according to Scripture, too. I always leave that out of the gospel presentation, but that's as important as anything. Is it, It's all written in advance. Jim read us Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 today to open us. It's prophesied in advance. He died for our sins, according to Scripture. He was buried, according to Scripture. He came out of the grave, according to Scripture. This is what Jesus did for us. Please call on Jesus today. Call on him and be saved from what's coming. Our closing verse comes from Romans chapter 11. For I did not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, with them. Behold, I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You make it with the Gentiles. We're just incorporated into it. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. How anybody can read those verses from Romans 9 through Romans 11 and come to the conclusion that the church has replaced Israel is beyond me. It shows a complete blindness of their own. Talking about Israel being blind, man, the church has been asleep at the wheel. Oh, yeah, God's forsaken Israel. If he's forsaken them, he'll forsake you too. It will never happen. Thank God for the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ. Next week is Deuteronomy 32. It's verses 23 through 34. The majesty of the words will go on some more. It's entitled The Song of Moses. Part 4. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 96th Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants He's been practicing all week, and he got it perfectly. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But... He also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, before we go on, I said this in the Thursday Bible study. And a lot of people don't know this because they don't listen to the Thursday Bible study. Okay. This past Monday, without anybody being in the class that heard the class, I want to know, Guess what happened this past Monday? Unless you were in the class, don't say it out loud. Can anybody guess what happened this past Monday? Ray got sick. Ray got sick. He did. A lot of people got sick. Man, the church is empty. Well, you guys count. Okay, here's what happened. I typed the last Deuteronomy sermon this past Monday. Deuteronomy. A lot of oohs and ahs, which means they did not listen to the Bible study. I know that now. Okay. The last Deuteronomy sermon, and he's shaking his head yes, where his wife is laughing at him. <laughs> okay, I'm so thankful to have done this with you all for these past 11 years. We started on October 23rd of 2011, and we will be done with the Torah, the Lord willing, in about the mid-May, I would expect, somewhere around there, because we've got 10 or 11 more sermons. We've got a resurrection sermon. But I am so thankful to all of you for having spent the time to learn the books of Moses. What a gift and what a treat it's been. It just, it, it just tickles me to death because how many people really care about what is said here? And yet it's the foundation of everything that we believe, if we believe. This is it, the foundation. So thank you. Okay, I've got a question for you. And 
I, I'm actually going to ask a couple questions kind of together, so don't yell it out really quickly. David's, David, the king of Israel, David's father was, and how many sons did he have? Jesse. Okay, I've heard a couple different things. I've heard six, seven, nine. He had, in one account, seven sons, and in one account, eight sons. It records eight when he was first ordained. Okay, and it was making a play on words that you wouldn't know in the English, okay, because uh, eight is shmone in um, Hebrew, and then to be anointed is shaman. So they're making a play on words. The eighth is anointed, okay? But in Chronicles, it says there were seven brothers, and that brings in all kinds of problems if you want to tear the Bible apart. But the Bible won't be torn apart. There's lots of explanations for why there are seven. One, children that die before having children are often not mentioned in genealogy. So that's one possibility. There are other possibilities. So it doesn't matter. Don't take offense that one says eight and one says seven. It's perfectly reconcilable with other passages of Scripture. But then that brings in all kinds of other issues. It is a great study. And we'll be there in... Uh, 11 years to get through Moses. We'll be there in nine more years, maybe. So just hold on. Okay. This is called the Song of Moses, part three. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are obese, you disobedient nation. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. With foreign gods, they provoked him to jealousy. With abominations, they provoked him to anger exceedingly. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know, they drew near. To new gods, new arrivals, that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful, sad but true, and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them, this disobedient nation, because of his sons and his daughters' provocation. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith towards me. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols that cannot soothe. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. By a foolish nation, I will them to anger move. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell below the deepest fountains. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the song of Moses. Thank you for your whole word. What a treasure it is. What a wonderful treasure it is to show the march of time, the span of history, and what you are doing in it to bring us back to yourself. Thank you for this precious word. Every single bit of it is just so wonderful. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.